Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Holy sweet mother of God shit. Hello, hello, hello. What, what, the, what the hell are you doing? I hope no one's eating dinner. The next best thing, every Monday night from 10 until midnight on Radio Free Brooklyn. Fun for everyone except for dear Jesus. Something like that. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Or go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page. Stuff that we talk about in any given episode. Information. Links to pertinent sites. All that stuff. Usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash NBT Radio. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something-something to keep us in business. If you like what you hear tonight, well, a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that. Uh, If you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So, that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. Holy crap. It is so goddamn cold outside that I hope you haven't had to be outside much today. According to AccuWeather, which is, you know, accurate, I assume, I don't really care, the actual temperature is 12 goddamn measly degrees. But if you're reading this from outdoors in particular, you'll appreciate the fact that it feels, the, the real feel, if you will, is negative fucking six degrees due to that unforgiving bastard, Mr. Wind Chill. Now, 15 seconds after setting foot outside, I just want to fucking die. Walking over here, for example, from my apartment, it's a 10-minute walk at the most. But these winds, I tell you, the wind blowing in your face, and I'm just like literally crying out loud. You can actually hear me being like, Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I hope you haven't had to experience any of that. An Arctic blast is what they're calling this. An Arctic blast. That's what made the outside world very, very cold and very, very unpleasant today. But alas, it is Martin Luther King Day. Is today his birthday? Is that why we celebrate this day today? No. No. Today's not his birthday. His birthday is January 15th. So we have it on the Monday, this Monday every year. I don't know why it falls on this day, but it does. To celebrate him a little bit, I want to play part of my favorite Martin Luther King speech. It is not the I Have a Dream speech. It is actually what is called the I've Been to the Mountaintop. The last speech he ever gave. He delivered this speech the night before he was killed, the night before he was killed, and it was delivered at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. The speech primarily concerns the Memphis sanitation strike. He calls for unity, economic actions, boycotts, and nonviolent protest. But at the end of the speech, he also discusses very openly 
the fact that he doesn't think he's going to be alive much longer. He says, I probably won't get there with you, but I'm not afraid. He talks about the possibility of an untimely death, and wouldn't you know it, the next day, he's killed. Take a listen. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he fades back into the panel of preachers and people he was on stage with. And the next day, he was shot dead at the Lorraine Motel. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on the show. But for now, God help us. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, look into what exactly happened to Martin Luther King. What was the truth? behind his death. We'll find out in a moment. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So if you'd like to support our mission so we can continue to bring you quality community radio, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. You can donate as little as a dollar and every cent helps. 
helps us to continue to stay on the air. So please, please help support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. And remember, RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit, so your contribution is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Again, that's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. All right. Did you know that Radio Free Brooklyn has a free iPhone and Android app? No. That's right. You no longer need to be chained to your computer to listen. Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app from the App Store or Google Play so you can listen to independent community radio wherever you go. No. You can find the iPhone app by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash iPhone. And the Android app is available at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash Android. So download the app today and listen to RFB wherever you are. This is the next best thing. So there are a lot of questions. Uh, I've actually been to the site of Martin Luther King's assassination. It's the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. I've taken a look. They still have the room exactly as it was the night that he was killed, the day that he checked into that hotel. And I've taken a look from the vantage point that they think they concluded that James Earl Ray fired that fatal shot. But there are many theories on who actually did the shooting, who actually did the killing. Was it really James Earl Ray? There have been questions about that, questions that not only conspiracy theorists have brought up and asked, but actually Martin Luther King's own family. Think about it. Many people can remember the instant they heard. Where they were. What they were doing. The sense of the world shifting on its axis. And they think they know what happened. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Soon after that day, in April 1968, 40-year-old James Earl Ray, a small-time crook, became infamous as the man who assassinated Martin Luther King, Jr. Everybody wanted a single assassin, a racist. Uh, that would then say James Ray did it, and we could go on about our business. But controversy arose almost immediately. Was Ray nothing but a pawn in a much wider conspiracy? He's not a criminal mind that could have executed an assassination, even with a lot of luck involved. Or... Was he the lone gunman? Pulling off the assassination of Dr. King, as we now know, without security or anything else around him, was not something that a rocket scientist had to do. Over time, even the King family would begin to doubt Ray's guilt. I believe, and my family believes, that this man is innocent. If James Earl Ray didn't kill King, who did? Could it have been a racist cabal? The mob? The FBI? The CIA? even U.S. Army intelligence. They're kind of a task force, and various aspects of the task force had various jobs to do. The three agencies, they had the same view of Dr. King as the number one domestic enemy to our national security at that point. My government, did they have anything to do with it? I've seen what the FBI did, I've seen what the CIA did, I wouldn't trust them at all. 
What is the truth? And what remains unknown? About a defining moment for a generation and a nation. So having been to the Lorraine Motel, having seen the room, having seen the very spot where he was standing on the uh, on the uh, porch, having looked out the window that James O'Ray supposedly looked out of, you know, it's, I have a lot of questions. I don't necessarily, I, I am a firm believer that, uh, that, Lee Harvey Oswald could not have been the one who shot John F. Kennedy, that fatal shot to his head. I've been to the Texas School Book Depository. I've looked out the window. I've seen the X, the exact X, where the car and where John F. Kennedy was sitting when he got shot. There's no possible way that Lee Harvey Oswald could have shot John F. Kennedy in the head the way we see him get shot in the head from the vantage point where he was standing so, yes, I think we are, I think there is something going on there. With this, I don't know. I don't think so. But perhaps we'll be convinced. Perhaps we'll be convinced. They have every right to try. Don't they? Of course they do. April 4th, 1968. Martin Luther King is in Memphis, Tennessee, providing support for a sanitation worker strike. That afternoon, he meets with aides in his room at the Lorraine Motel. I've seen that room. I've seen how it is situated, how where their that where their bags were, where the newspaper was seat well, was. The glasses they were drinking out of are still sitting on the table that they were sitting at. The beds that they were sitting on still have the same sheets on them. It's very eerie. Cool, but eerie. <laughs> That's right. A few minutes before 6 p.m., King steps out of his room to go to dinner. He pauses on the balcony to speak to colleagues in the parking lot below. 6.01 p.m. The single shot catches King in the jaw, pitching him backward. In unison, several people point toward the spot where they think the shot originated. Bessie Brewer's rooming house about 200 feet away. Sniper's bullet cut down, Dr. King. An hour later, at 7.05 p.m., the 39-year-old civil rights leader is pronounced dead. And the search is on for his killer. A young white male, well-dressed. A young white male, well-dressed. Possibly in a late model white Mustang. A late model white Mustang. North on in an entry... They're looking for a white male who is well-dressed driving what might be a white Mustang. A white Mustang. Way next to Brewer's rooming house, police discover a bundle. In it, they find a 30 6 Remington Game Master with a sight. On the rifle, two fingerprints. The shot apparently came from an apartment building directly across the street. From the beginning, there are suspicions of conspiracy. One civil rights activist points a finger at local law enforcement. All I know is that police were all around. You had literally 100 to 150 police in the area. And uh, 
they didn't see anybody. That was the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was there that night, who is actually one of the people Dr. King was speaking to down in the parking lot from the upper balcony. He thinks there was something fishy going on. The next day, the government tries to quell talk of a conspiracy. The evidence at this time indicates that uh, it was the act of a single individual. A single individual. Two weeks later, the feds say they have a suspect. Fingerprints on the rifle are matched to James Earl Ray, a convict who had escaped from a Missouri prison where he had been serving time for robbery. On June 8th, authorities apprehend Ray at Heathrow Airport in London. In March 1969, after negotiating to avoid a potential death sentence, James Earl Ray pleads guilty to murder and receives a 99-year sentence. But soon, Ray will recant, claiming his attorney coerced him to confess. Rather than signaling the end of the investigation, Ray's capture and incarceration mark a beginning. From there, the true story of the Martin Luther King assassination has always seemed just beyond reach. A story with too many questions and too few answers. The physical evidence is like overwhelming that James Earl Ray killed Dr. Martin Luther King. That's not the issue. The real question is, was it somebody else involved? In the mid-70s, G. Robert Blakey was the director of the Cornell Institute on Organized Crime. He had worked in Robert Kennedy's Justice Department. Blakey doubts that Ray was capable of masterminding King's assassination. He's a petty criminal, convicted of robbery. Not a terribly smart one. It was one robbery where he dropped his wallet. How did this seemingly inept criminal manage to evade a worldwide manhunt for two months? Ray traveled to Atlanta, Canada, England, Portugal, and finally back to England before he was caught. And what had motivated Ray to kill the civil rights leader? Uh, why did he do it? That's a crucial question. A lot of people tag James O. Ray as a racist, but he had not acted consistent with being a racist up until the point. It's just not an adequate explanation. In 1977, the House of Representatives convenes the Select Committee on Assassinations. G. Robert Blakey is appointed chief counsel. We did really what the FBI didn't do. We made an effort to see if there was a conspiracy involved. The committee hears from hundreds of witnesses. Among the most anticipated is James Earl Ray himself. I did not shoot Martin Luther King Jr. And if I would have had a lawyer to represent me, I could have offered conclusive proof in support of this denial. The first theory is that he was set up by some dude named Raul. This, in my opinion, is crazy. Ray claims he was set up by a mysterious character known only as Raul. Who, in my opinion, does not exist, never existed. It is 1967 and 39-year-old James Earl Ray has recently escaped from a Missouri prison. Montana all along was to escape and uh, go to Canada 
and from there tried to re- relocate in a foreign country. He travels to Mon- That's the voice of James Earl Ray himself telling you what his plan was. Let's listen again. He escaped from a Missouri prison. Montana all along was to escape and uh, go to Canada and from there tried to re- relocate in a foreign country. He travels to Montreal and tries to find fake identity papers. This is where I met this Raul. And uh, we had several meetings. He uh, indicated yeah, exactly. that he would help me uh, obtain travel papers if I would uh, help him take some material from Canada and the United States. According to Ray, Raul gives him a simple instruction. We got in uh, Birmingham and he had me to purchase the rifle. And he gave me an address in Memphis, and he told me, you know, rent a room upstairs. And uh, I was supposed to meet him there with, with the rifle. Ray says Raoul never tells him what the weapon is for. On April 3rd, Ray hands the rifle to Raoul. The next day, he says he simply followed Raoul's orders to check into Bessie Brewer's rooming house and then to disappear. So the Raoul story, if you take it James Earl Ray, is I was doing all this at Raoul's direction, and I didn't do it, Raoul did it, and the way he did it, he left me as a patsy. Well, difficulty is nobody ever saw Raoul. According to Blinky, Ray's own story confirms the most damning evidence against him. James O'Ray's got a problem. He bought the gun. He was in Bessie Brewer's rooming house with the gun. It's got his fingerprints on it. He's got to have an explanation for his participation in these events. His story doesn't hold up. Blakey concludes Ray is lying, but the committee scrutinizes the FBI as well and raises troubling questions. They were putting bugs in every place King went and they had information about his personal life. And they were trying to get King to withdraw from his leadership position in the civil rights movement. In the 1960s, D'Army Bailey was a civil rights activist. We had a, a government uh, institution in the form of the FBI that was out of control in terms of respect for the citizens' rights. They wrote him a letter, basically saying, if, if you don't get out, your background will become public. You- so let's let's clarify what he's talking about here. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI for God knows how long, but God knows too long, really was a racist. And he was spying totally illegally, but he was spying on Martin Luther King. He knew that he had been having affairs here and there, and he tried to use that information to get Martin Luther King not just to withdraw from his leadership positions, but to actually kill himself. Yes, that's right. J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself. Without, your background will become public. You know what you ought to do. And of course, the inference would be suicide. The committee ponders the possibility of FBI involvement in King's murder. A number of people were concerned that the FBI or somebody connected to the FBI had a hand in Dr. King's death. They uncover no evidence to support those suspicions. No FBI agent was the shooter. No FBI agent paid money to anybody to get James O'Reilly to do it. So you can't say the FBI killed King. 
The second theory is known as the racist cabal. What is that? I don't, I don't know. They do, however, find indications of a conspiracy rooted in Ray's own family. The committee hears testimony that one or both of Ray's brothers might have been after a $50,000 bounty placed on King's head by members of the American Independent Party, a segregationist political group. Although the committee cannot find conclusive evidence of this plot, Blakey believes it is a possibility. So when we got to the end, we said it was pretty clear that James O'Reilly did it. But we also said that there was a possibility of a conspiracy involved in it. The report, released in 1979, contradicts the FBI, who conducted the first investigation into the killing and had concluded Ray acted alone. And needless to say, the establishment didn't take that too lightly. Everybody wanted a single assassin, a racist. Uh, that would then say James O'Reilly did it. Just like they wanted a single gunman for John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. But the report doesn't satisfy skeptics, who believe it glosses over evidence implicating both the FBI and the CIA. The government's case falls apart right at the crime scene. And the fingerprints of U.S. intelligence are on this case in a number of ways. By the mid-1980s... All right, I have to chime in here, because I do want to just say that given all I know about J. Edgar Hoover, the way he ran the FBI, the way he abused his power and his animus, just pure animus towards Martin Luther King... The idea of him organizing a hit on the civil rights leader does not seem out of outside the realm of possibility. It really doesn't. And I'd be willing to entertain uh, some theories on that. When we start getting into what they're about to get into, acting like this was a a joint effort between the FBI and the CIA and the White House. Then I'm just thinking, you know, now it's hard to believe now because of the fuck nut who's in the White House, but typically a president of the United States has a lot on his plate, a lot to do in any given day. The idea that these high-ranking officials would organize and plot out a deep-seated conspiracy to kill a national hero. Hard to convince me of that, but let's hear it. By the mid-1980s, the government had completed two major inquiries into the 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King. The FBI investigation immediately after the murder concluded that James Earl Ray was the lone shooter. In 1979, a House of Representatives committee determined that Ray might have been linked to a network of white supremacists in St. Louis. But to some students of these events, the facts suggest a much wider conspiracy, perhaps one involving elements of our own government. 
Philip Melanson is an expert on political assassinations. In 1989, he publishes The Merkin Conspiracy, named after the FBI's investigation into King's murder. I'd researched the case and was mind-boggled at the controversies and unanswered questions. He reads thousands of declassified documents, including King's FBI and CIA files. The House Assassinations Committee probe of Dr. King's assassination was flawed in many aspects. They never connected any dots with Ray, and they only investigated Hoover's FBI. They did not look at the CIA or Army intelligence, both of which were surveilling and targeting Dr. King at the time of his assassination. So I guess this is in line with the idea that James O'Ray is just a patsy. A patsy for who? The government. Getting a little out there on cuckoo level, but let's hear it. Melanson finds too many of these unanswered questions to accept the government's conclusions. There are no valid witnesses who can place James O'Ray with a gun at that crime scene. In fact, none of Ray's fingerprints are found in the bathroom. Although there are two on the gun itself. In addition, some eyewitnesses point to the second floor of Bessie Brewer's rooming house. But others say they saw a man directly below that window, crouching in the bushes. James O'Reilly got off. Important to point something out here. Sorry for all the interruptions. People say a lot of things. People say they see a lot of things. That's why, that, that's why in 2019, eyewitness accounts are now not really considered very reliable in court. People think they saw a lot of things. And we're talking about something that happened at this point, something that happened in April of 1968. That's a long time ago. So take all of these people say they saw somebody below. Now, I didn't realize that there were no fingerprints of his in the bathroom, but they did say there were two fingerprints of his on the gun. Well, that's important, right? Yes. Below that window, crouching in the bushes. James O'Reilly got awfully lucky when he planned, quote unquote, to shoot at Dr. King in a bathtub very awkwardly sticking the rifle out of the window in an angle that would defy any marksman to make the shot. Okay, now, here's where I will say there's a there's a point to be made, not what he just said. See, they're going to try and make the point, I think. We'll find out. I guess we should listen. But I assume he's about to make the point that, you know, James O'Reilly was not a trained marksman. He could not have made this shot very easily at all. In fact, it probably would have been impossible for him to make this shot. That's, you know, the, there was a scope on the gun. You know, it's not that hard to make a shot with the scope. Um. And it was a, you know, it's not where there wasn't, I've, like I said, I've been in this boarding house. I've looked out the window. It didn't, it's really not that hard of a shot. And that's said by me, a person who hates guns and does not shoot them. <laughs> but I, you know, it looked pretty good, easy to me. The point I think that's worth making is how the hell 
would he have known that Dr. King was going to be on that balcony at that time? He wouldn't have. Unless he was, you know, maybe he knew that he had checked into the Lorraine Motel and he was literally just camped out in that bathroom waiting for him to come outside. Because he must, he knew that he was in, he knew that he was staying at that hotel. But think about it. He was in his hotel room. He had come out at six o'clock to go to dinner. Had he not stopped on the balcony for a few seconds to talk to people down below, he would have gone from his room to the stairs, down the stairs, and to dinner. So it seems a little coincidental that whoever the shooter was, James O'Ray, if he got lucky, it was that Dr. King stopped on the balcony. Because it's one thing to hit somebody from a weird angle with a scope. But a moving target? No. Then I don't think so. All right, so let's hear what they have to say. That would defy any marksman to make the shot. Melanson doubts that a mysterious man named Raoul set up Ray. I've always thought that Mr. Ray invented Raoul in order to make the story simpler for himself. In my view, Ray was in the midst of some kind of a network that he had no connection with and probably no knowledge of. And Ray, who in his previous criminal career had simply used names of people he knew as aliases, suddenly is able to develop untraceable new identities based on names of Canadian citizens. Ray would never come out with any logical story about how he got the aliases. What's more, the men whose names he took match Ray's general physical description. The key to the aliases is not that they looked so much like James or Ray, you wouldn't mistake them, but a fugitive description for the suspect fleeing the crime in Dr. King's assassination would have fit these aliases just fine. One alias in particular stands out. Eric S. Galt, a name Ray uses for nine months before the assassination. To Melanson, it is a tantalizing clue to a wider conspiracy. Ray signed his name, Eric Starvo Galt, and that looked very much like the real Galt signature, whose middle name was St. Vincent, and he scrawled it as something that looked like Starvo. When I discovered that Mr. Galt was a security-cleared employee, working for the United States at the Union Carbide plant, I began to suspect that that was a file appropriated by somebody in U.S. intelligence. According to Melanson, not only was Ray not the lone shooter, he may not have been the shooter at all. On the day of the assassination, Dr. King's movements were not predictable. Ray did not know when Dr. King was going to emerge from that balcony. But government agents who tracked King's every move would have known. Well, don't I feel like a horse's patoot? Because that's the very that's the very question I asked, and now here this loon is asking the same thing. I guess we're both cuckoo for cocoa puffs. But government agents who tracked King's every move would have known. The intelligence agencies, in their surveillance, would know precisely that around 6 o'clock, Dr. King was going to come out on that second floor balcony and there would be a window of seconds in which a sniper or snipers could operate. Professor Melanson believes another indication of official involvement in the murder is the movements of the Memphis police on April 3rd and 4th. 
The previous time Martin Luther King was in Memphis, riots had erupted. At that time, Dr. King felt uh, challenged in the eyes of the nation that he could show the ability to lead a peaceful march here in Memphis and uh, was determined to come back. I am convinced that we can have here and in Washington a massive nonviolent campaign. Now that was Martin Luther King in late March of 1968, days before he went back to Memphis to lead a march and days before he was murdered. This time, the police wanted to be ready. There were four tactical units composed of three police cruisers each with three officers in each cruiser. They were there to intimidate Dr. King's party and to prevent what the Memphis police thought would be a riot emanating from the Lorraine Motel of all things. And they were circling within a five-block radius of the Lorraine Motel. But on April 4th, the day of the assassination, Memphis police redeployed the patrol, placing them almost half a mile away from the motel. The withdrawal of the tactical units is a very important step in a successful conspiracy because nobody, not James O'Reilly, not the other shooters, not anybody, could escape that neighborhood after a loud rifle shot when you had 12 cruisers within a five-block area. That's just not true. I'm sorry, but he said, how many, 12 cruisers within a what area? Could escape that neighborhood after a loud rifle shot when you had 12 cruisers within a five-block area. Why would there have been 12 cruisers within a five-block area? I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King was a hero, a civil rights leader, but he wasn't a president. He didn't have secret service detail. But regardless, 12 police officers within a five-block area, yeah, that's a lot. But there are people living in this city. There are people living in these houses, these blocks, I mean, to say that someone couldn't possibly get away, that's just nonsense. Police would later say one of Dr. King's associates called off the squad cars, but Melanson could not corroborate this claim. He insists the evidence indicates that the King assassination was a large, coordinated effort by rogue agents within different branches of the federal government. I think when the FBI sends out a memo asking for suggested countermeasures, quote-unquote, against a King presidential candidacy, and when the CIA portrays King as the most dangerous national security threat uh, in the country, that there are some renegades or some paranoids in agencies like that who will take the law into their own hands. James Earl Ray, according to Melanson, was just a pawn of these powerful forces. I believe James Earl Ray did not know who killed Martin Luther King, or perhaps even that an assassination was coming down. If Melanson suspects the government was involved in King's murder, others look at the evidence and point a finger at another institution in American society. Martin Luther King was killed as a result of a mafia contract. He was shot by a sharpshooter in the bushes behind the rooming house. Oh, for God's sakes. Now, I was just... <laughs> I was just starting to think to myself, you know, maybe they have a point. I mean, because I said before we heard any of this, I said I could see the FBI 
perhaps having a hand in this. They had tried to get him to kill himself, you know, for God's sake. But now we're going to say it was the mafia? Why would the fucking mafia want him dead? Jesus. The story seems tailor-made for a conspiracy movie. A national leader is murdered. The unsuspecting loner, swept up in forces he doesn't understand, ends up as the fall guy. But is Now let's just wait a second. An unsuspecting loner ends up as the fall guy. Now he his fingerprints were on the gun. We've said in this very documentary type thing that he had escaped from prison. Now that's not, I don't care what year it was, 2019 or 1968. Escaping from prison is not an easy thing to do. So acting like he's just this numbskull who got caught up in something, you know, he escaped from prison in Missouri. Let's say he was involved in this assassination and then he was, you know, globetrotting for two months before he ever got caught. Why was he globetrotting? Well, you know, why did he travel from here to Canada, to England, to Brisbane, uh, to uh, Tasmania or wherever? You know, why was he going everywhere? Okay, so I just don't like this idea that, you know, James O'Reilly was just this kind of innocent oaf who suddenly was blamed for this murder that was committed with a gun that he happened to have fingerprints all over. Wept up in forces he doesn't understand, ends up as the fall guy. But is this what really happened to James Earl Ray, the man convicted of killing Martin Luther King? Attorney William Pepper believes that it is. The overwhelming weight of the evidence is that James did not do it and uh, was not in a position to do it. In the 60s, Pepper worked on Dr. King's anti-Vietnam War campaign. Later, he became an attorney and a student of the King assassination. Finally, in the 80s, he became so convinced of Ray's innocence, he decided to represent him. To Pepper, Ray is an unlikely assassin, an inexperienced gunman, a failed criminal with no history of violence and no apparent motive. James is burglary career would put you in stitches you know i mean he he'd be escaping from the police and he'd make a right turn down a road that turned out to be a driveway he was inept at any criminal trade but he was an excellent patsy and he did not like to talk again they're painting him out to be this mentally inept person and look he probably was no rocket scientist but the fact that he had committed many crimes that landed him in prison shows that he had a criminal past. He escaped from prison, which is no easy task. And he evaded arrest for escaping from prison. He was, he was arrested for this assassination, not escaping from prison. Ray's first conviction for criminal activity, a burglary in California, came in 1949. That's a good almost 20 years before the assassination. In 1952, he served two years for the armed robbery, armed robbery. That would imply that he had a gun of a taxi driver in Illinois. In 1955, Ray was convicted of mail fraud after stealing money orders in Hannibal, Missouri, then forging them to take a trip to Florida. He served four years in Leavenworth Penitentiary, 
1959, he was caught stealing 120 bucks in an armed robbery. Armed robbery in a St. Louis grocery store. That would imply he had a gun once again. Ray was sentenced to 20 years in prison for repeated offenses. He escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary in 1967 by hiding in a truck transporting bread from the prison bakery. Now, you can say that that maybe, you know, maybe the guards or whoever was transporting that bread, maybe they're stupid as well. Perhaps. Perhaps. But the fact that he escaped from prison in 1967 That tells me he's not just this lovable oaf. And the fact that he was committing armed robbery over and over again tells me that he's not just some innocent dude who's now a patsy. So give me a freaking break. He was also born... Oh. I was going to say he was also born in Tennessee. No, that's where he died. He was born in Alton, Illinois in 1928. So the idea that he might have been racist is not out of the question. Give me a freaking break. But by all means, carry on. Over the course of his investigations, Pepper claims to uncover a vast conspiracy that ended King's life in order to silence his dissonant voice. They took him from us, and they did it for the most abysmal of reasons, and perhaps they did this to others. Theory. The Grand Conspiracy. Pepper's speculation is supported by a surprising source. Betty Spates, a waitress at Jim's Grill, the restaurant adjacent to the rooming house from which the fatal shot was fired. According to Pepper, she held a secret for more than two decades. Which in my mind means that whenever she decided to tell this secret, it probably wasn't necessarily all that reliable. In April 1968, Betty Spates is carrying on an extramarital affair with her boss, Lloyd Jowers, who owns Jim's Grill. Early in the evening of the assassination, Spates is in the restaurant when she hears a suspicious noise out back. She cautiously advanced to the open door, and what did she see? She saw old Lloyd running toward her, white as a ghost, carrying a still-smoking rifle. Betty is confused by what has happened until later. When she learned about the killing and all of that, she was convinced Lloyd had done it. Until she talks to Pepper in 1992, Spates had told no one what she saw. She kept the secret. She held it. And it was partially out of fear and partially out of loyalty to, uh, to Lloyd. For 24 years, Jowers had maintained he had been in the restaurant when he heard the gunshot. Now, in light of Spate's revelations, he admits that was a lie. And in a 1993 national television appearance, Jower spins an elaborate tale that begins with Frank Liberto, a businessman rumored to have mob ties. Frank Liberto owned and ran a vegetable warehouse in Memphis, Tennessee. He was a member of the Marcello organization. He was given, effectively, the contract to kill Martin Luther King. He asked me to handle uh, 
This is the voice of Lloyd Jowers. He asked me to handle uh, the money transaction. He asked me to handle a money transaction. Hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Alberto told him he was going to receive a rifle from a man called Raul and he was to hold on to that rifle. He was going to receive a large sum of money uh, that would be delivered to him in a vegetable box, which it was. Jowers then gave the rifle to the shooter, whom he does not name. But Pepper sees a plot that goes beyond an alleged mobster and a small-time businessman. The same year as Jowers' television appearance, yet another revelation leads Pepper to a third party, the United States Army. In March, an article in the Memphis Commercial Appeal uncovers sensational details about the Army's vast surveillance activities in the 1960s. The Army, like the FBI, considered Martin Luther King a potential domestic threat. King began giving speeches linking the anti-war movement to the civil rights movement. The army is fighting a war in Vietnam and back home, the politics of the nation was turning against them. In the 1960s, Christopher Pyle was an army intelligence officer. When King went to Memphis in late March, early April 1968, army intelligence was watching him. William Pepper is struck by one detail mentioned in the Memphis article. There was a, uh, an Alpha 184 Special Forces team in Memphis on the day, and no one knows what they were doing there. Pepper, suspicious about why an Army Special Forces team would be in Memphis, presses the reporter's sources for answers. According to Pepper, these sources, former Army Green Berets who wish to remain anonymous, say there was an army-backed plot to kill King. You don't control riots with snipers. Snipers are put in place to kill people. Pepper also alleges these sources provide proof. A copy of a supposed cablegram that he calls orders to kill, clearly meant for King. Martin King was never going to be allowed to leave Memphis. While the cablegram never mentions assassination, it does mention orders to reconnoiter King's location prior to his arrival, and that a, quote, main force, the sniper team, would require local intelligence assistance. South to Main Street. Now Pepper has connected the dots and created a portrait of what he sees as a conspiracy that involves everyone from the FBI to a restaurant owner. So one has to look on this as a kind of a task force. And various aspects of the task force had various jobs to do. And they all only did their jobs on a need-to-know basis. According to Pepper, on April 4th, the FBI, Memphis Police, and the Army are watching King from several points near the Lorraine Motel. One sniper hides in the bushes behind the rooming house. He is the hitman, hired by mob go-between Lloyd Jowers. The trigger man holds a gun supplied by Raul. Meanwhile, army snipers crouch on the roof surrounding the Lorraine Motel. They are there to drop King if the mob's contract killer fails. 
but he doesn't fail. At 6.01, Martin Luther King is shot. It was a mob killing that Liberto had organized that was successful. But that other unit was there as a backup. In 1995, William Pepper lays out his case in the book, Orders to Kill. The book captures the attention of Martin Luther King's younger son, Dexter, who had long suspected a wider conspiracy. Dexter had... Just want to be clear, he just said he has long suspected a wider conspiracy. At first, listen, one might have heard a whiter conspiracy, but no, no. His younger son, Dexter who had long suspected a wider conspiracy. Dexter had decided that he did want to meet with James Earl Ray. He wanted to look him in the eye and he wanted to ask him, did you kill my father? There is an urgency to their meeting. James Earl Ray is dying from liver disease. The King family fears the truth about Dr. King's assassination might die with him. On March 27, 1997, Dexter King visits the ailing Ray at a prison hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Dexter asks Ray if he killed his father. James Earl Ray responds with a simple, no, no, I didn't. Afterwards, well, that's a shocker. Did you kill my father? No. Okay, case closed. Dexter King announces his family's support for a trial for Ray. I believe, and my family believes, that this man is innocent. Yeah, that's a real recording. His son Dexter did say that on television, and as far as I know, still believes that to this day. It's incredibly controversial. Um, yeah. I believe, and my family believes, that this man is innocent. This announcement ignites controversy. In some quarters, Dexter is accused of betraying his father's memory by defending the man who killed him. Among the critics is historian David Garrow, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Martin Luther King Jr. He faced off against Dexter King on national television in 1997. If Mr. King and his relatives knew the history of how many times this has been looked at thoroughly, they wouldn't be in the embarrassing position that they are. I'm really not surprised because Mr. Garrow is an agent for those forces of suppression who do not want this truth to come forward. But later that year, William Pepper, who had become James Earl Ray's greatest defender, learns that he himself may not have the whole truth. Of course I acknowledge that maybe I was provided with wrong information. Uh-oh. June 19th. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are hearing all the arguments of who might have killed Martin Luther King Jr. on this MLK Day. 1997. The grand conspiracy surrounding the Martin Luther King assassination is attracting national attention. That night, the ABC News program Turning Point features an interview with attorney William Pepper, who claims King was murdered by a mafia assassin under orders from a conspiracy of government agents. Pepper is asked about documentation he claims proves a special forces sniper team took part in the assassination. 
I have seen only a cablegram, a military cablegram, which has certain elements of the of the information in it. Uh oh. Certain elements of the information? What the hell does that mean? In the next moment, Army intelligence expert Christopher Pyle appears on screen. The so-called orders that he reproduces in his book, which are not orders for an assassination operation at all. And that document has been presented to a number of generals and admirals, and every one of them has almost instantaneously said, this is a hoax. This document was provided to me by the reporter who was my intermediary with the snipers, and he got it from them. To this day, I believe it is probably authentic. Yeah, well, you're probably, and I would say more than probably, wrong. Then, Pepper is asked about Major Billy Edson, the man he had named as leader of the Special Forces sniper team. In his book, Pepper had written that Edson was dead, perhaps murdered to cover up the assassination plot. I believe Edson, one of them was killed in New Orleans. I don't know which one it was. The producers are leading Pepper into a trap. A few moments later, Billy Edson, the man Pepper had just claimed was dead, steps into view. Edson, how do you I do? don't know why I'm shaking hands. I just want to look at you. Edson claims his unit was not in Memphis that day, and his former commander says no one under his command was involved in the assassination of Dr. King. This man's name never would have come up if I had known he was alive. It appears Pepper's credibility has been badly damaged. Yeah, he has no credibility, so all this nonsense about mafia stuff... <laughs> Even Christopher Pyle, who had openly criticized Army intelligence, thinks Pepper has gone too far. I'm not going to accept unsubstantiated stories that the army went beyond surveillance and tried to kill people. Before you tell me that, you'd better have some proof. And before you go public with it, you'd better have very good proof. It's inevitable that you do make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, so I saw particularly when you're, you're working without the support of government agencies and intelligence files. And in fact, in spite of uh, their opposition, you're trying to establish the truth. Now, that's the guy. That's Pepper. He's saying, of course, you know, you make mistakes. We're all human, right? No harm, no foul. Except that you have said this guy, <laughs> this man who has now stepped into view, was had led this mission to murder Martin Luther King and that he had been subsequently killed himself so that no one would find out. Well, here he is, alive and well. So... Yeah. Oops. Edson sues Pepper's publisher for $15 million. The case is settled for an undisclosed amount. It's not the only time Pepper's research will be challenged. A few years later, a Department of Justice probe concludes that Frank Liberto, the mafia man Pepper alleged bankrolled the grand conspiracy, has no mob ties. Despite these controversies, the King family continues to stand by Pepper. Now that is absurd. That's bizarre. I mean, that really is sad because it makes what that guy said about this position they're in being embarrassing. Really embarrassing. How could you continue to stand by this guy when he has been exposed? This is your father we're talking about, for God's sakes. 
but the debate over the King assassination draws another critical eye. Writer Gerald Posner, he too weighs the evidence and comes to a radically different conclusion. Oh great, yet another radically different conclusion. Was it some woman named Shirley who shot him from behind? In 1998, Posner tackles the controversies of the King assassination in Killing the Dream. It's familiar ground for Posner, who had dismissed the conspiracy theories surrounding the John F. Kennedy assassination in the book Case Closed. In the King assassination, I expected a much easier case in which Ray would be the lone assassin, and it was the opposite, in which I was left with more questions at the end, a much more complicated character than Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray is. But there is one thing Posner is certain about. I have absolutely no doubt the person who pulled the trigger in April of 1968 was in fact James Earl Ray. And the last theory is that James Earl Ray is simply guilty. He did it. He killed him. Posner argues that William Pepper and Philip Melanson give too much weight to marginal evidence and unreliable sources. He believes there is clear evidence of Ray's guilt. For example, Ray rented a room with a perfect view of King's Motel. James Earl Ray then sets the room up so he has a clear access to the window and watches for a couple of hours until he sees Dr. King come out a little bit before 6 p.m. People saying, by the way, Dr. King was only there for a short time. One thing is clear. Whether he was there for 30 seconds or 15 minutes, he was there long enough to be spotted, identified, placed in the assassin's sight, and killed. In his rush to escape, Ray makes a blunder. At that point, he starts to walk to his Mustang for his getaway, and something very interesting happens. If you look to the left, anybody walking out of that boarding house would see the edge of a police car parked. Ray saw the police car, did not know if anyone was in it, but he had an immediate decision to make. If you've just shot the greatest civil rights leader in the United States, and your purpose is to get away, if they see you and they stop you with the gun, it is over. Ray throws the gun into the front of a storeway. It's his only option. He gets in the Mustang, drives away, and gets away successfully. But the gun is the key mistake. Posner believes Betty Spates and Lloyd Jowers are simply not credible witnesses. Yes, the problem with Jowers is he looks good on the surface because he's at the assassination site. You think, bingo, we've finally gotten the breakthrough that we're looking for, and then you start to scratch the surface, and boy, I'll tell you, it smells. Posner learns investigators taped a conversation between Spates and her sister, in which she revealed the real motive for implicating Lloyd Jowers. He wanted to sell his story and needed Betty to back him up. There was $300,000 waiting for them down the road. She confesses to making it up and corroborating it for that purpose. It was never, in the essence, true in any remote respect. Posner believes that William Pepper's so-called, quote, orders to kill is nothing more than a fabricated document. I don't think he had anything to do with the faking of that document. It was a memo that looks real on its face. It was the problem that I always say of Bill Pepper being willing to embrace the evidence without necessarily shaking the tree hard enough, and therefore he was somewhat gullible and got duped by people who had a story to sell. Confirmation bias. He already believed this story. He wanted it to be true. So when he saw that fake document, he thought, Eureka, here's the proof I need. Didn't vet it. Didn't, you know, scrutinize it to any real degree. Of course. That's where Posner's answers end. 
and his questions begin. James Earl Ray, what could possibly make him keep quiet? I personally believe that he would stay quiet and keep family from going in. The only people he really trusted was Jerry and John, his two brothers. I've always been suspicious about Jerry and John despite their denials. Posner believes a $50,000 bounty, supposedly offered by a segregationist group, might have inspired Ray and his brothers to hatch a plot to kill King. But despite Posner's doubts about a grand conspiracy, in 1999, William Pepper wins what he considers a major victory. It'll be there for historians and scholars, and as far as we're concerned, James Earl Ray's name has been cleared. Thirty years after Martin Luther King's assassination, the forces behind his murder remain a mystery to many. In 1998, his confessed assassin, James Earl Ray, dies in prison. It is a blow for his attorney, William Pepper, who has been fighting to prove Ray's innocence. Ten years of trying to get a trial for James, I had failed. And I felt very badly about that, that, that this man who I believed was innocent had died in prison. But Pepper does find a way to keep alive the case for Ray's innocence. On behalf of the King family, he pursues a wrongful death suit for the murder of Martin Luther King. At least, perhaps we could initiate a civil trial against Lloyd Jowers, whom we knew had an involvement. Lloyd Jowers, the former Memphis restaurant owner, who in 1993 admitted he had a role in the conspiracy to kill King, is too ill to testify. So the trial takes place without him. Now, this is the guy we've just established, has no credibility, had every reason to make up a story because he wanted to sell the story. Okay. And they waited until he was too old and sick to actually speak up. In November of 1999, the proceedings begin in Shelby County Circuit Court. Pepper presents an elaborate case for conspiracy. We tried the case over 30 days. We had over 70 witnesses there who laid out some various pieces of this puzzle. And the jury just sat enraptured with the whole thing. The jury returns a staggering verdict. Not only did they find Lloyd Jowers liable for King's death, but they also assigned partial blame to a conspiracy possibly involving the US government, the Memphis police, and mobsters. It was an exhilarating experience. Exhausting, but exhilarating. After the trial, the King family issues a statement in support of the verdict. Quote, We can say that because of the evidence and information obtained in Memphis, we believe that this case is over. For Pepper, the verdict closes the book on the controversial case. It'll be there for historians and scholars and uh, as far as we're concerned, James Earl Ray's name has been cleared. But some dismiss the significance of the verdict. So difficult for me to imagine that the jury would not come to the decision it did because you had the person being sued, Lloyd Jower, saying, yep, caught me red-handed. It was a big conspiracy. This was really a trial looking for rubber stamp of a theory. They got it. I don't know what people like Posner could say about a trial where 70 witnesses put forth an awful lot of detailed information about a killing. I don't think they can comment on it because they weren't a part of it and they didn't even visit it. Bill Pepper never came into this case. 
saying I'm a historian looking at what happened. He was an advocate from the get-go for his client, James Orway, trying to free him from prison. Amid the conflicting theories of the King assassination, one theme emerges. It appears likely that James Earl Ray did not act alone. But who his mysterious conspirators might have been remains in dispute. I believe that William Pepper's research and investigation have been groundbreaking in establishing the presence of army intelligence and army intelligence snipers. G. Robert Blakey was chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Mr. Pepper comes up with, oh, how about this? How about this? Where's the coherent story? Mr. Pepper does not have an alternative coherent story supported by credible witnesses. And until he does, I'll stick with what we did in 78. William Pepper maintains that he achieved justice for his client and provided... So, yeah, that's about enough. I think that William Pepper may... You know, he can think that he achieved justice for his client, James Earl Ray. Sadly, and I don't know why, and I, a lot of people don't know why, I guess some members of the King family helped him to win this case for James O'Ray. I'm with Gerald Posner, that last theory. I think James O'Ray absolutely did pull the trigger. He probably was following up on some bounty that was put on Dr. King by some racist cabal. That makes perfect sense to me. And his fingerprints were on the gun. And it I don't know. So that's my take. Now, obviously, there's a bunch, you know, it doesn't seem like they come to any definitive conclusions, but that's why they call it a conspiracy theory. You can make up your own conclusion if you want. But it seems pretty obvious to me. I can't believe that Pepper guy actually got to represent James O'Reilly after being so exposed. But again, I'm not a lawyer. What the hell do I know? This is the next best thing. Don't go.